You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant to shot. LeBron James with no regard for human life. Jordan. Oh, a spectacular move by Michael Jordan. And now, your hosts. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Greetings, this is Aaron Fishman. Three of the past four seasons have witnessed the young Utah Jazz narrowly missing the playoffs in that deep, crowded Western Conference. The franchise hasn't won a postseason game since 2010, when Jerry Sloan was still head coach. But this season, things are looking up, thanks in part to a trio of veteran offseason acquisitions namely George Hill, Joe Johnson, and Boris Diaw, the Jazz stand at 15-10, and 10, and they've accomplished that despite experiencing a rash of key injuries yet again this season. Fortunately, we'll have all that Amar on the show, the managing editor and head writer for SB Nation's SLC Dunk. He'll explain Utah's gradual improvement under coach Quinn Snyder, and how the team's bolstered depth has resulted in such noticeable improvement. In pursuit of jazz game action, Omar has traversed the nation and beyond, visiting LA, Milwaukee, Chicago, Indiana, Detroit, Cleveland, Toronto, DC, and New York. All that Omar, coming up. Hey Omar, it's great to have you on. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, it's always fun to talk about basketball to people who, uh, follow me on Twitter and don't just say mean things all day. We're going to start off with a topic that I'm sure you're actually tired of talking about with the Jazz, though. It was a similar refrain last season when we interviewed Andy Larson on our podcast about the Jazz, and it's about the issue of injuries for the team. Already this season, it's been an issue again with so many key players missing games. I think I saw you tweet before the Kings game on Saturday that the Jazz have missed, on average, over one and a half starters per game. Do you think that's just the Jazz being unlucky these past few seasons? Or do you see a bigger problem there with the players or the organization? I actually think that it's just the luck of the draw and uh, more conservative training staff right now. Utah actually has an aspiration at this point, and it means that right now they're going to have to sit guys. Because they want to be healthy during the playoffs, which is something that, you know, that's when it actually matters. And they've had a bunch of injuries this year and last year and the year before. But for the most part, these are acute injuries. They're not chronic injuries. They do have a menace limitation on some of these guys. Uh, in the case of Derek Favors, he's a special person because, you know, he does have plantar fasciitis and he does have heel issues. And they definitely want to monitor that. But for everybody else, it's pretty much just an acute injury, which is going to heal with enough time, and they're just going to move forward. Last year is last year. This year, we have to look at it in a completely new situation because it is a unique situation. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point that you bring up, especially with it being so early in the season. You're taking the long view of the season, making sure everyone's healthy when it really matters. I know Gordon Hayward sat out against the Warriors a couple of games ago. It seemed like that was more of a precautionary measure more than anything. And it seems like the Jazz have managed to stay afloat for the most part, even despite all the injuries. They're currently 15 and 10. And 
especially against teams under 500. They're doing well. They're 11 and 3 against those teams. Is that sort of a silver lining considering that when fully healthy, the Jazz do look elite this season? Well, if not elite, at least competitive for sure. And I think the main reason is that they've had a few seasons with injury before. So they kind of figured out that we need to, you know, prepare for that. And what Dennis Lindsay, the GM of the Jazz did was that he went out and he moved some young pieces or draft picks or whatever, and they wanted to get depth. And I think that they accomplished that this season. No doubt we'll talk about adding uh, George Hill and Joe Johnson and Boris Diaw. These guys, they haven't been healthy for every game of the season, but they have made sure that when Utah is missing, what is it, like one and a half starters a game, uh, about like three rotation guys every single game, which is pretty high, I think, they still have enough guys to stay in the game. If this was last year, with last year's roster, the record would probably be, you know, maybe eight wins instead of 15. So that's what they did. They knew they'd have to plan for injuries, and it seemed to work out so far. I think it's safe to say that Gordon Hayward is the centerpiece of this Utah Jazz team. He's looked really good this season when healthy. Would you say this season he's finally taken that leap towards stardom? Yeah, like, I I think... It's almost now or never for him to make that leap because this is his seventh year in the league. Eighth year? Jeez. Wow, he's getting up there in age. Um, So this is basically it for him. If he can't take that next step, if he's just going to be the best player on a bad team, you know, then we're going to put him in that rank of like maybe a Derek Coleman or a Kendall Gill. If he's able to take a team to the playoffs while still being a guy who puts up numbers, then he's in a different echelon. Maybe not like a star, but like the way that he's concentrated on, you know, I don't know if you guys play video games or not, but like he's made it so the things that he's good at and the things he's has worked on work together so that he's even better than he originally was. So he's kind of streamlined himself into being a better offensive player. And I think that we're seeing that with the way that he's getting to the line more and making more free throws and, you know, he's finishing with contact. I think working on your body is something that all NBA players have to do. If you're going to be a star, you have to at least be average or above average physically. And that skinny kid out of Butler didn't have the body to be a star. This, uh, you know, Captain America hunk right now, maybe he is. Yeah, this version of Gordon Hayward, progressively, it just seems like he's getting more and more in shape and just improving pretty much all facets of his game. There is some talk in the offseason about him being considered in trades but i don't know if the jazz were actually really considering moving him that seriously what do you think about that yeah i I don't think the main problem is that he has an early termination option a player's option for his last year of his contract which is this season and with the way that the cap is going you know a dumb person would not opt out he's going to opt out he's going to try and get some more money every nba player will do that Utah's worry is that they're a small market team. They're not currently a playoff team. It's hard to retain your best player. And that's why people were saying maybe they should trade him as a precautionary move. I don't think Utah wanted to do that at all. He's their best player. He's been the guy that they've been promoting. He's the one who's doing like the local TV commercials for years now. He's the only guy out of their uh, draft picks who's had like close to 2,000 minutes a season. So they've invested in him. They want him to be that cornerstone of their franchise right now. And 
They've marketed the heck out of him. I really don't think they were serious about trading him. Yeah, and it's really looking like Hayward is becoming that cornerstone. Another guy who they expect to be around for a while, the stifle tower Rudy Gobert. He's been known for his defense, rebounding, and blocks mostly. But this season, he's developing an offensive game too, especially lately. His last three games, he's averaged just under 20 points while shooting 19 for 22 from the field. I know a lot of that are dunks. But um, his field goal percentage has risen 10 percentage points from last season to this. Where has that offensive game come from? I think it's just like the overall hunger that he has. I got to see him at the NBA draft combine back before he was even an NBA player. And like there was just something weird about him. And I think weird in like that same way that if you've seen Kobe Bryant or or talked to people who've talked to him, it's like, He's either going to be the best serial killer or be really motivated in his job. And I think that Rudy Gobert has that same personality where if he's not killing people, if he's focused on something, he's going to want to be really good. And he's kind of motivated by, quote unquote, the haters on Twitter and other social media. If anyone is critical of him, he will favorite that message to kind of like give him motivation. And the offense has improved with the rest of his game. I think that it's kind of like um, an opportunity for him to show people that he's better than what they thought he was, you know, almost making it into the second round of the NBA draft or being overlooked or traded by the team that drafted him, which was Denver. So uh, he wants to prove people wrong. It's it's that psychology of his to try and either murder people or, or be a good basketball player. For society, it's good that he picked the latter. Yeah, or he could be like a great chef in France. I'm sure there are opportunities there. But yeah, yeah. just be glad he's not killing people. He'd be easy to pick out in like a lineup. I I think you'd know, yeah. This is now Quinn Snyder's third season. It seems like he's been with the team more, but he's quickly shaped them into a really solid team. The second half of 2014-15... The Jazz were mostly known as an elite defensive team when uh, Gobert was starting to get more minutes. Now this season, not only are they fifth in defensive rating, but they're seventh in offensive rating. How has Quinn Snyder made his imprint on this team so quickly? Yeah, he's been a huge positive influence. The thing is that he is working hand-in-hand with what the front office wants. Sometimes the head coach is selected by a front office, but he's not in line or doing what they want. What they wanted Quinn to do was rebuild Utah's defense. And the first two, if not the first three training camps were all focused on that. So obviously the offense was lagging behind. But, you know, the bill of goods we were sold is that Quinn Snyder, you know, he worked under Coach K and Popovich and Larry Brown and Ettore Messina and Budenholzer and all these other guys. Like, he's supposed to be an offensive genius. And it seems like because the team, they've had five different point guards in the last five years, as the starter, they finally have some players that can run his offense, and we're finally seeing a catch-up to the defense. Yeah, related to when you and Lauren were talking about the injuries, I think just having so much depth really helps him implement his system. Yeah, it's a Spurs-like system. While Hayward is the cornerstone or George Hill is doing well this year, it's kind of like one that relies on more players contributing, and it's kind of egalitarian in that way. With more depth, obviously, there's better passing, you know, people are getting better looks, and there's more points coming. With this roster, Dante Exum doesn't necessarily 
contribute so much to the wins and losses. I think I'd be curious to hear your opinion on that. But he was the fifth overall pick in 2014. He's still so young. Missed all of last season with injury. How's he developing on both sides of the ball? I'm really interested to hear about that. I think that he's making a lot of strides, but the main thing is that he missed an entire season. He missed his second year in the league. That's usually a pretty big developmental year. It's kind of like if you have a bad rookie season, if you come out and have a strong sophomore season, that's like, okay, we don't have to worry about you. You're in line with you know developing into a good rotation player or a starter or whatever. He missed that critical period. And compounding that is the fact that he's coming back from a severe injury. That used to be a career-ending injury. But uh, with today's modern medicine, you know, he can actually still <laughs> work in basketball. His development um, has been hampered by that, by those two factors. So he's behind from where the other guys are who were drafted in 2014. But there are things to be happy about. He's making open shots. No one thought he could do that before he was drafted. He's finding his pace within. He knows when to go to the rim. And he knows when to hold back, which is something that every player who's young and playing in a tough system needs to figure out. So he's getting some of these fundamentals, but he's still lagging behind on the actual experience. So I I think maybe in his fourth season, we'll be a little bit happier with him. But right now, as a number five pick, it looks like he's a little bit behind. Where are you on the question of minutes distribution? I know there's a little bit of a debate between who should be the next point guard behind George Hill, whether it's Shelvin Mack or Dante Exum. Are you of the same mind of people who say that giving Mack more minutes now is more conducive to winning this season, whereas Exum getting his time in is more investing in the future and that there has to be some balance between the two? I agree with those two premises for sure. Mack is currently a better player he should be he's in you know he's been in the nba for a lot longer he's played in the playoffs before and um you know he's kind of like a finished product you know what what you're going to get with him whereas xm he's going to have four blocks one game and the next game he's going to go one for seven from downtown so it's harder to to game plan for success with xm on the court right now and the other thing is with george hill out you need more stability at point guard and less of a wild card as the backup. So it only makes more sense to have Mac playing now. But probably this is my you know tinfoil hat conspiracy theory. <laughs> they are looking at keeping Hayward. Mac is Hayward's boy from Butler, <laughs> obviously, and Mac is in a contract year as well. So they're showing the good faith, saying, "Hey, Gordon, we love you." We're even giving your guy from college a chance to get another contract with us. We're even playing him in front of our top five draft pick, you know, this baby kangaroo who used to be on like Foot Locker ads. So like we're definitely yeah. trying to, to, to make that's you happy here. And uh, that's, again, just a tinfoil hat conspiracy. I think playing XM now expedites that learning curve for him so that he can hopefully one day reach where he's supposed to be with his development. If you guys watch The Simpsons, that one episode where Bart gets put in like the remedial class, but they were actually going slower than the actual class, and he was able to figure out that there would be no way for him to catch up to the actual class by going slower than them, that's kind of what they're doing with Dante. They're rolling the dice that keeping Gordon happy is more important right now than making Dante a rotation player. And that's tricky. 
you know, it's not my thing to figure out. Thankfully, smarter people are on it. And uh, this is what they've come up with. I think that Sheldon Mack, Gordon Hayward relationship is one that, well, at least I didn't think of previously. I forgot that they had that Butler connection. It is interesting when thinking about these quote-unquote up-and-coming teams, how they should weigh their focus from player development to winning now, especially a team like the Utah Jazz, who some feel like could be a contender for home court in the playoffs this year. Just sort of a philosophical question. Do you have an idea of when a team does have to make that shift from player development to wins? Is it making the playoffs or making home court? Or do you think maybe you don't do it unless you have a shot at a championship? Or is that something that you think of from team to team? Well, I definitely think that there should be something uniform here. Like uh, a team to team is nice, but if you have the benefit of being a low seed in the playoffs while you're developing, that means that you have a really good team possibly. But you look at some of these other teams that built through the draft, like uh, Oklahoma City Thunder, they had to switch to being a win now team because they knew that they had to win now with the way that the team was with all these guys on rookie contracts. So that's why they had to get rid of Jeff Green for Kendrick Perkins. Today, that trade looks ridiculous. But back then, getting the um, starting center for a defensive-minded club that won the NBA title, that looked a little bit better for a win-now mode. Utah hasn't really done that type of drastic move yet. So it's kind of say that they're trying to do two different things at the same time, and the results remain to be seen. To be win-now, that means that you're giving up a lottery pick and that's exactly what Utah did this offseason. They gave up a lottery pick, the 12th pick, to get George Hill. And uh, that's a clear indication that they think that they definitely need to win now. And I'm all right with that. I think it's probably better to maximize being a win-now team when there's a chance to win the big game. Again, that's probably a bias that I have from being a Utah Jazz fan for so many championship less years. Like the Houston Rockets got two titles because they were good when Michael Jordan wasn't playing. Utah didn't have that. And as a result, Utah doesn't have any rings. Right. Yeah, it is something that's interesting to think about. You mentioned one of the key vets brought in this season, George Hill, that might signify that Utah is making that shift. Last season, a lot of analysts believed that the Jazz might be a serviceable point guard away from real contention. And now at least when he's healthy, they have one in George Hill. James Herbert was on our show in the preseason, and he called the Jazz his most exciting storyline going into the season, just mainly because of that pick and the development of guys like Hood, Hayward, etc. What tangible differences do you see in the team when Hill is on the court versus the other guys like Mac or Axum or Neto, and how does he change the team? He's a hand-in-glove fit with what both the GM and the head coach want. He's like a 3-and-D point guard who allows the wing players to to handle the ball and initiate things. And that's kind of their offense with Gordon Hayward and Rodney Hood. The other thing is that like Hill has exceeded my expectations. He's shooting fantastically well. He's also in a contract year. But like the big difference is that compared to the other point guards that Utah's had, like Mo Williams or Trey Burke or whatever, like this is a guy who has been in the playoffs. He knows what it takes and he knows when to pick his spots. Other guys would be forcing it or they'd be too timid. That was kind of what Dante Exum's rookie season was like. 
George Hill, he's averaging 20 points per game right now. And that's because he knows what this team needs from him. And I haven't been so happy about having a point guard on my team since, you know, maybe Darren Williams before he blocked me on Twitter. So, you know, it's fun. It's fun right now. I like how he got that in there. It's important to note, maybe if, if someone can tell Darren Williams, just unblock this guy. But anyway, we'll get back to the conversation. He has a legit reason. (laughs) You don't have to mention what it is, though. That's okay. Unless you want to. Yeah, I don't think I can legally. (laughs) (laughs) Let's continue then. So, yeah, Joe Johnson, he was vocal about his willingness to sacrifice for the team when he signed with Utah in the offseason. He was quoted as saying, I'm not coming here trying to be a star or a starter. He's been able to be a starter and score points when they've needed him because of injuries. He's also been decent off the bench. One thing I'm curious, though, about is I know the sample size is small, but when he has come off the bench, he hasn't been as aggressive shooting the ball. His shot attempts and points per 36 are a lot less off the bench. Do you think that's something that he'll have to adjust to, his having the same attack mentality that he's had his whole career when he comes off the bench? Yeah, it's a huge adjustment for him because he's a guy who, you know, including playoff minutes, he's averaged about 3,000 minutes every year he's been in the league, and he's started for over 90% of the games he's ever played in. So this is a huge step, like, for a seven-time All-Star. If he wants to continue being in the league, he has to be able to figure out how to be a good bench player, how to be an effective guy, how to go from being, like, the the number one option to being a, you know, a rotation guy. And I think it's going to be an issue for him all year long. He's a smart guy. He's a vet. He's a professional. I don't think he's trying to step on people's toes right now, but I think that most Jazz fans would be okay with him being the top scorer off the bench instead of being a guy who sometimes takes three shots, which I think is a little bit too little. A guy like that, Iso Joe is his nickname. I know that has a negative connotation at times, but... He has that nickname for a reason. He can score with the best of them in the league. So you don't want that completely wasted coming off the bench. But him, George Hill, and also Boris Diaw, again, those veterans that were added this season. And Quinn Snyder kind of has that Spurs style you mentioned earlier, which I think makes it extra cool that Diaw is now on the team. Do you see Snyder and Diaz's teammates adjusting as the seasons progressed with how to best utilize Diaz's talents, especially offensively? I actually have no idea about that. It's, uh, it's a huge question mark for me. I seem to spend half of my time watching the game and commentating on it and the other half complaining about Boris Diaz because he's, he's such a talented guy. And the best way I can put it is that Diaz is someone who could make a good team great. He can't make an average team good. And the problem for the Jazz is going to be figuring out how the Spurs were able to implement him. Because Utah plays at a slow pace. They're a half-court team. They like to pass. These are all good things for DL, but for better or worse, he's been less than what I expected. And I think that's going to be the problem for Quinn Snyder, especially the back of my mind fear is that like he's got so many other things going on. If he's not playing for an NBA contender... Is he just going to focus on the other things in his life? Like uh, he's a movie producer and uh, he's like an artist and he does all this other stuff. When he was with the Charlotte Bobcats, 
you know, basketball wasn't the main focus for him. If Utah's not winning, it's going to be hard for him to be keyed in on Utah Jazz games. I think that's a legitimate concern. Fit is obviously very important with any player in the league. He's had parts of his career, like with the Bobcats, the The Hawks Hawks, to a certain extent, yeah, where you just don't know if he's fitting in and, and you're maximizing his capabilities. Popovich and that system are just the best in the league at figuring out what a player's strengths are and working the system around that. In Diaz's defense, the starting lineup has changed so much. His role from game to game changes a lot depending on which unit he's playing with and who the starters are alongside him or if he's coming off the bench. Do you think, though, that when he's in there, it would be to his and the team's benefit to try to get him the ball more out of the post? That's a lot of where his assists have come from historically and where he likes to score from, too. Yeah, and like this is the thing, the same thing with Iso Joe is that they need to be able to put their game into Utah Jazz's system because that's where they've been historically the most effective. If they're just passing the ball around and doing dribble handoffs, that's not what they're best at. And I think we need to get Diaw in the post more. He like if he's able to assume some type of agency with the bench unit where he can self-post himself up, maybe in transition or something to get like a mismatch. I want to see more of that. What he's doing right now is kind of what Joe Johnson is doing. He he doesn't want to rock the boat. He wants to see what the team is before he puts some influence on it. He's passing up a ton of shots. It's going to be tough for him to adjust. It's going to be harder for Joe Johnson to adjust, though, because Diaw, he's already at that life cycle in his career where he is a bench role player. Johnson, is um, he's been a good soldier so far, but uh, you know at least you know he's going to be professional about it. Diaw, he could just open up a bakery midseason and you know become like 280 pounds if the team isn't playing well. It's, it's worrisome. No need to thank me, Amar, but I want to talk about one of your favorite topics, injuries again. And I want to talk <laughs> about specifically Alec Burks and Derek Favors. Burks first, do you think he'll ever be fully healthy again? He missed 51 games last season, hasn't played yet this season. The season before last, he missed 55. And also, what about Favors, who's missed 14 already this year and is a huge part of what the Jazz system currently does? Yeah, you know, thank you, Josh. I, I never get a chance to talk about the injuries enough. Um, no problem. Al- yeah, Alec is my favorite player on this team. He is like the most dynamic scorer, and he plays such a you know high throttle game. And his style of play is what is getting him injured all the time. And that that's just, like he had a shoulder thing from college, but that was the only carryover surgery that he needed. Everything else has been an acute injury be it being fouled hard by Aaron Aflalo or falling underneath the basket or having stuff happen to his ankle. Like these are all things that are a product of his type of gameplay. He's either going to have to adjust how he plays in order to stay on the floor for more games, or he's just going to have to, you know, be this type of player who goes at it at 100 and uh, misses about 20 games a year. I don't think that there's a way to, to get luckier with the way things are. It's the opposite with favors because favors is is like a, a long-standing problem with a entire system with the plantar fasciitis and then the Achilles and then you know everything else that goes it's all connected if you know the you know the something bones connected to the other bone you know it's it's all the same thing with favors and as a result they need to manage him 
that's why he doesn't play over 30 minutes a game if you look at his career you know minutes per game and it's tougher because favors is someone who is more important but with the way that the nba is changing if trey lyles can get a few more rebounds maybe that makes favors expendable but you know it's it's tough because one is chronic the other is acute and they would both really help this team win games if they were healthy but i don't think that they're ever going to get healthy Right. We'll definitely hope that both of them recover in as great a capacity as their bodies allow. But one last question while we have you on, Amar. What do you think the biggest untold storyline for the Jazz is this season? Um, Because I'm a crazy person, I'm going to have to go with that tinfoil hat conspiracy theory that I mentioned (laughs) earlier. It's also negatively affected Raul Neto's minutes. Neto was like the starter last year and like he outplayed Derek Rose in an overtime game and he's been a professional point guard for quite a while in Europe and before that South America he's a legit NBA player but he's not getting any playing time right now because of the way that it is that they just want Mac to be there because Hayward is the guy that they really need to keep other than that the untold story has to be the fact that this is a completely different Utah Jazz team This is one that's taking threes, they're making threes, they're not posting anybody else up, they're not doing pick and rolls. This is not the the Utah Jazz I watched in the 80s and 90s. This is a modern Utah Jazz team that's going small. And it's everything us old fans hated, but now we're rooting for it because we're winning. This Utah Jazz team, it seems like in previous seasons as well, but especially going into this one, there was a lot of intrigue just with all their guys that they added and finally i think they're gonna make the playoffs finally so it's really good to have you on and learn more about the quality of their team what they're doing when these guys are going to come back all that right definitely i love being on the show thank you so much and uh if you want any more uh weird conspiracy theories discuss that off the record (laughs) we know where to find you thank you (laughs) thank you guys